0: I want you to imagine with me for a moment that you are facing an insurmountable debt. Friends, let me tell you something. That's where the majority of the world lives. Whether it be a financial poverty or whether it be a bankrupt soul, the world is in debt. Imagine that fear has shackled your emotions and it's rendered you in a state of hopelessness there are many people including in the body of christ that live there and they just don't know how to seem to find their way out well jesus himself said i am the way he's the way in he's the way out he is the way period perhaps there was a time where you felt hopeless In your lives, imagine your creditors are hissing out the menacing threats of foreclosure and repossession. And then, late one evening, an unexpected knock comes. You get up and go to the door, and when you open the door, you look into the eyes of a total stranger, yet, they are the kindest eyes you've ever laid your eyes on. He is standing under the canopy of a starlit heaven holding a suitcase. There are no exchange of words, only the exchange of the suitcase. Well, most people don't invite strangers in. And the man in this story passed as well, and the stranger just gracefully turned and walked away. You go into the house, and you open that suitcase. And there in that suitcase is enough money to pay off your entire mortgage and to eliminate all of your debt and then live comfortably for the rest of your life. What is your response? You fall to your knees in the floor overwhelmed by the magnitude of the gift and the generosity of the giver. You are grateful to this giver, and you'll be grateful for a long time for the gift that he gave you. But how many of you know that there will gradually come a day where the feelings and the emotions and the joy that you first experience when you receive the gift, how many of you know there'll come a day when all of that will subside? But I'll tell you one thing that won't subside, and that is the persistence questions of, why did the stranger come? And why did the stranger give such an extravagant gift? And why would he knock on my door? You see, that's the piece of the puzzle that's missing in this story. And none of us like it when we have pieces of the puzzle missing. We're too curious of people. We want to know. We had our Christmas party at work on Friday. I think I really actually worked for one of the most generous employers I've ever met in my life. And I could go into a long story to explain that, but trust me, I've worked for a number of people and this is one of the most generous men and his wife as well that I've ever met in my entire life and not just at Christmas, but all year long. He demonstrates giving to his employees and to the community, he is a giver. And so we had our Christmas party, and there were 60 or 70 people that gathered in a room. And I've been through 12 of these Christmas parties. There's some predictability to these things. I know what's going to happen. We're all going to feast on a catered meal. And there'll come a point in time when all that's said and done, he'll take the time to hand every single employee a Christmas card. And we know inside that Christmas card, there's the gift that we all understand, right? Money. We know that's inside that card. And we know he's generous. But here's the one thing I really love. It doesn't matter if it's your first day on the job or if you've been there 30 years, the gift is the same. Friends, that's what grace looks like. Do you remember the story of the workers in the vineyard? The one that was hired at the 11th hour received the same pay as the ones that worked all day long? What was the point of that story? It was to demonstrate that God is not only generous, but God is a God of grace. That just because you thought you worked all day long, you should deserve more. No, He's the God of grace. As the cards were handed out, there was a gentleman sitting across from me, a man I trained earlier this year in my department. And this is his first Christmas. He already knows the generosity of the owner of the company. But he's never looked inside one of those cards. And everybody received him, and I saw him holding that card. He wanted to look. He looked down the table to see, is anybody else opened the card? All the cards were laid on the table in front of him. So he felt kind of funny being the only one to open the card. So he put it back down. And then he picked it back up, and he tore the corner of it. And then he looked down the table, and nobody was opening their cards. so he laid it back down. Finally, I'm not kidding you, I heard him say, the suspense is killing me. And he literally opened up the card and he peeked inside that card and he just said, wow. To not know the motivation of the giver and to not know the value of the gift drives people crazy. It's the piece of the puzzle that's missing for a lot of people, even in the body of Christ. They don't understand the heart of the giver. They don't understand the value of the gift that came to us wrapped in a blanket. They don't understand that kind of generosity. So they just see Christianity as we go to church. We read our Bible occasionally, oh, it's so much bigger than that. friends. I've told it before and I'll say it again. I asked Papa a couple of years ago, I said, Daddy, I said, if I never preach another sermon as long as I live, are we okay? And I heard my daddy say, Yes, son, we're okay. Because whether you do it or you don't, I've already heard you do it anyway. And I validate you, son, not by what you do, but I validate you based on what Jesus Christ has done for you. He is your gift, son. So, in preparation, For the Christmas message, I had to ask myself kind of the same questions. Why did Jesus come? And why would the Father give such an extravagant gift? And why would he come and knock on my door? Because I understand there are people that have not responded, but that doesn't mean he hasn't knocked. They just didn't open the door. And as I pondered that this week, I thought, who am I? And as I was pondering that, that song by Casting Crowns began to play in my head. That's exactly what it's called. Who am I? That the Lord of all the earth would care to know my name, would care to feel my hurt. Who am I? That the bright morning star would choose to light the way for my ever-wandering heart, not because of who I am But because of what you've done, not because of what I've done, but because of who you are. I am a flower quickly fading here today and gone tomorrow. A wave tossed in the ocean, a vapor in the wind. Still you hear me when I'm calling. Lord, you catch me when I'm falling and you told me who I am. I am yours. Oh, I am yours. I am yours. Friends, let me tell you something. The reason he came was so that he could make us his. Because sin stole us from him in the garden when Adam sinned. Stole our purity, stole our innocence. And so he came so that he could make us his. If I close the message right now, I'm not going to do it. But if I did, and you had to walk out of here with that truth, Stuck to your heart like a barnacle on the bottom of a boat, I'm telling you, that would be all you need for the rest of your life. Every situation, you'd say, I am His. I don't know what that does to your heart, but it makes mine rejoice. I am His. I'm His. No matter what I do, no matter what I say, no matter what I think, I am His. And I love it. So, let's ask the questions again. Why did Jesus come? Why did the Father give such an extravagant gift? And why would he knock on my door? Well, with those questions in mind, I want to minister for a little while this morning through a message I'm calling, The Reason He Came. At Christmas, we celebrate the birth of Jesus. And rightfully so. It is that time of year where we should put the emphasis on the birth of Christ. I know we've commercialized it across the world and it's taken away from its true meaning, but we celebrate the birth of Christ. But his birth without his death and without his resurrection would be useless to us. I want you to see that by putting ourselves in remembrance, of the reason he came. I believe it helps us to cherish the gift, and helps us to celebrate the goodness of God all the more. What I want you to see through the message today is that there are actually many reasons that he came. The knock on our door begins in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. Therefore, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, which is done in the body by human hands. Remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise without hope and without God in the world. These two scriptures speak of a time They speak of a generation. They speak of a people, if you will, that were without covenant, without hope, and without God. That's the reason he came. And if there would only been one person that was without hope, and without covenant, and without God, he still would have came. These scriptures speak of a people who were separated from Christ. And the Bible says they were excluded from citizenship. In fact, it calls them foreigners to the covenants of promise. One version of the Bible says that they were strangers. In other words, at one time, you and I were facing foreclosure on our soul. We had no means to pay the debt we were facing until, until that knock pierced the silent night. You see, that knock came in the form of a newborn cry from a manger. It was the cry of innocence. It was the cry of righteousness. It was the cry of purity and holiness. It was the cry of forgiveness. It was the cry of daddy's love. It was the cry of redemption. And it was the cry of reconciliation. It was the cry for citizenship. It was the cry for a better covenant. Friends, that cry came by grace and truth. That cry was the cry of Christ. And of all places that it would show up first, in a lowly manger? What about a Hilton hotel? No, a manger. We see that story in Luke chapter two, verses one through 12. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria and everyone went to their own town to register. And what did she do with them? The Bible says she wrapped him in cloth and placed him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were terrified. I always think if an angel would show up for me, I just don't, sense that I would be terrified. I think I would just be joyful. These are shepherds that have seen a lot of things at night. Wild animals. They've heard the cry of all kinds of things. I lived in the mountains of Virginia, man, when I was growing up as a kid. Oh, man, you could hear panther crying out there. I mean, it was, it was a spooky place, you know. So I kind of get these guys. All of a sudden, they're just kind of getting a little sleepy And all of a sudden, the brightness and the glory of God on an angel shows up. And the Bible says their response was, they were terrified. So what does the angel do? But the angel said to them, do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born. Look at those next two words, to you. I want you to take ownership of that. That Savior has been born to you. See, he was born to the whole world, but he was born to me. I've already taken ownership of him. He's born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be the sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. So when the angel appeared to these shepherds, the angel's first words were, do not be afraid. Now, have you ever noticed when you tell someone not to worry about something, that's where it seems like worry increases. Can you imagine getting on a plane? You get on the same way, man. You get on like this, you turn right, and you walk down and get your seat. Captains and co-pilots right there. Imagine the pilot looking at you when you got on the plane. He said, uh, don't be afraid today. I would look at him and say, is there something wrong? <laughs> Wouldn't you? I mean, why, why did you say that? So what is the antidote in this story for fear? It's not the words, do not be afraid. And look at the next words right there. I bring you good news. Friends, that is always the antidote for fear. Good news is translated as the gospel, and the gospel is translated as good news. And the good news will always eradicate fear. And so when you understand the good news of the Father... The good news that Jesus brought us, not just as a baby, but at a cross and all throughout his life. It pushes fear back. He said, I bring you good news. What, what's the good news? I'll tell you what the good news was. Perfect love just put on an earth suit and came and was born in a manger. If you don't find that good news, I'll take it for you then, because I'm telling you that was good news, because without that good news, you would have remained a foreigner. You would have remained separated from God. You would have had no hope and no God and no covenant. The good news is perfect love put on a nurse suit and was born in a manger. We're no longer foreigners to the covenant of promise. We're no longer without hope and we're no longer without God. The reason Jesus came was to bring us the gospel. He came to bring us the good news. What was said about him as a baby? He personally said himself when he stood in front of the religious leaders one day, and they said, would you mind just reading something for us? Here's the scroll. Would you just go ahead and mind reading? And Jesus said, this This is a wonderful opportunity to turn that old prophecy into some really good news. We find that good news in Luke chapter 4, verses 18 and 19. The Spirit of the Lord is on me. These are Jesus' words, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. Who is the poor? The poor are those that are facing an insurmountable debt. He said, he, my father, has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, or to proclaim the year of the Lord's grace. When he said, I've come to proclaim freedom... The word there literally means debt cancellation. That's what freedom is. If you have debt, you don't have freedom. Now, your debt may not bug you, but I'm telling you, you do not have freedom if you have debt. But it's when you step away from all the debt, then you sense a freedom working inside of you. I'm not talking about just monetary debt. I'm talking about debt of any sort. And Jesus said... I have come to proclaim freedom. I have come to cancel debt. The greatest debt Jesus ever canceled was the debt of our sin, our sin debt. That's the greatest debt he ever canceled. What exactly is the good news? It's we don't have to be afraid. See, that's the heartbeat of our ministry, is to reach down to the deepest root, See, the stuff that grows below the surface of the ground, the stuff you can't see, the root system that holds things like fear and guilt and shame and condemnation. See, you look at the plant and you go, hmm, plant doesn't look so good. Well, the plant has no problem. It's the root system. The root system is what supplies the plant. And so he's saying, you don't have to be afraid. You don't have to carry this fear. I don't want you to do this. Fear will tear you up. He said, in the town of David, the Savior was born to us. We are no longer foreigners without the covenant promise. The good news is that our Father has made room for us inside the inn. His name is Jesus, and He will never, ever turn you away. Never turn you away. He's made room for us. The Bible says He'll never leave us or forsake us, doesn't it? He'll never turn us away. His extravagant gift has pierced our darkest day and our deepest despair with glorious light and exceedingly great joy. The good news is that our Savior Jesus has forgiven our insurmountable debt. That is the reason he came. Now, 700 years before Christ was born, the prophet Isaiah prophesied. And he prophesied with great accuracy about the coming Messiah. We see this in Isaiah chapter 7 and verse 14. Therefore the Lord himself shall give you a sign. Here's the sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Emmanuel. 700 years before Christ was born, Isaiah is seeing something by the Spirit, hearing something by the Spirit. Do you think he understands that whole picture? Of course not. But he still writes it in his book. And he says, Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. Now, as we fast forward... We fast forward into the book of Matthew and Matthew speaks about the fulfillment of this prophecy even as he opens his book in chapter 1, chapter 1, verses 21, 22, and 23. He says this, and she shall bring forth the son and thou shalt call his name Jesus for he shall save his people from their sins. Now all this was done that it might be fulfilled which was spoken of the Lord by the prophet saying, behold, a virgin shall be with child and shall bring forth a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which being interpreted is God with us. Now, which prophet do you think he was reaching back and referring to? I'll tell you who it was. It was Isaiah. It's the only place in the Bible you find the name Emmanuel. It's the only place in the Bible you see this prophecy of a virgin conceiving and bearing a son like this. The apostle Matthew reached all the way back into the book of Isaiah and he basically said, I know the one you're talking about. I know the man you're talking about now. I didn't understand who this was when I sat collecting taxes, but when he said, come and follow me and I saw his heart and I saw him for who he was. Then I could put one and two together, and I could figure out, oh, Isaiah was talking about him. You see, Matthew was probably sitting there in the quietness of that moment thinking, I'm just a tax collector. Everybody looks down on me in life. When I was asking the question, who am I that the Lord of all the earth would care to know my name? would care to feel my hurt. That's when he called me. That's when he called me out of my debt. That's when he called me out of darkness. Isaiah chapter seven, verse 14 again. Therefore the Lord himself shall give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. When I was staring and meditating on this scripture, There was a word that jumped out above all of them, and you think it might be Emmanuel, but it wasn't. It was the word behold. And as I meditated on that, it began to develop in my heart. And I don't want to rush this point, because I think it's very important. Behold means to see or observe a thing or person, look what it says, especially a remarkable or impressive one. See, when you use the word behold, which we don't even do anymore, that's kind of an old English word, you know. We don't even use that word anymore. We just say, hey, look, you know, hey, check it out. You know, we don't even say, hey, behold. I mean, just language we don't use, right? But this word was reserved to draw your attention to something remarkable, something impressive. So when Isaiah said, behold behold, a virgin shall conceive. He wanted to draw his audiences and his readers' attention to something remarkable. And friends, it was bigger than an event. It was a person. See, I don't look at Christmas as an event. Christmas is a person to me, and it's Christ's mass. It's Christmas to me. He's a person to me. When they took Jesus to Pilate to condemn him, They wanted to condemn him. They didn't want to do it themselves. They wanted Pilate to do it. And Pilate, man, he interviewed him. He he just like, I can't find nothing wrong with him. Why would I want to sentence a man like this? And finally, he brought him out in Praetorium, and he said, you know what? You guys make the decision. Barabbas or Jesus, you know, what do you want to do here? But before he said that, when he introduced him, you know what he said? He said, Behold, your king. He said, Behold, your king. He was saying, listen, I want to draw your attention to someone I believe is special here. I believe this is a remarkable man. I can't find fault with him. So I'm going to turn him over to you, and you do whatever you want with him. And of course, he turned him over to the Jews and the Romans, and they crucified him. But that's what he said. He said, Behold, your king! Drawn his attention to someone very, very special. And I believe that night, that winter night when Jesus was born, I believe that's what Mary and that's what Joseph were saying in their hearts. They were saying, Behold our king. Oh, he's bigger than just a baby for us. We're looking at the king of Israel. And I believe the shepherds and all the host of angels were saying the same thing. Whether it was out loud or under their breath, they were saying, Behold, this night, our king. The word behold comes from the Hebrew word chenah. chenah. Why is that important? The Hebrew word Henna only has three letters. Reading from right to left, He, Nun, He. Now this is the word Isaiah used when he said, "Behold, the virgin shall conceive." He used the Hebrew word Henna. Henna. It's very much like the woman's name Hannah. Hannah. In fact, henna is spelled exactly with the same letters. Hannah, Hannah, same letters. What does Hannah's name mean? I don't care if you spell it forwards or you spell it backwards. Hannah is the same spell, forwards or backwards. Hannah's name means grace. And when you look at this word behold, it has three Hebrew letters, Che, Nun, and then "he again. Now what's important about that is the Hebrew letters have their numerical value built into them. They don't have a separate number system. They use their letters for their numbers as well. He is the fifth letter of the Hebrew alphabet, and it always means grace. Grace. And so, because it begins with grace and ends with grace, it is grace upon grace. Grace in place of grace. He. Fifth letter of the Hebrew alphabet. But what about that noon? Noon in the Hebrew alphabet is the 14th letter, and the numerical value for noon is 50. The numerical value is 50. As we know by studying our Bibles that 50 is the year of Jubilee. 50 is the year that all the slaves would be set free, all the debt would be canceled. That's why they call it the year of Jubilee. Everybody was happy. And so when he said, behold, the virgin shall conceive, he was literally saying, grace, debts canceled, grace. Friends, I'm going to tell you something that can only come through one person, and that's Christ. You see, it begins with grace and it ends with grace. And what does he do? He cancels every single debt you've got. I want to encourage you when you study your Bible, when you read your Bible, don't rush it. Look up words that seem like they're so simple because every word was put there by the mind of God through prophets. But he wanted us to discover these powerful realities and these powerful truths. Amen. We also see the word behold in the narrative of John the Baptist when he introduced Jesus to the world. We pick up that story in John chapter 1, verses 19 through 29. Now, this was John's testimony when the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem sent priests and Levites to ask him who he was. He did not fail to confess, but confessed freely, I am not the Messiah. They asked him, Then who are you? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? He answered, No. Finally, They said, who are you? You see, there was a piece of the puzzle missing for them, and it was driving them bonkers. Are you this prophet? Are you that prophet? Are you the Messiah? No, 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 no. Well, then who are you? They said, give us an answer to take back to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? John replied in the words of Isaiah the prophet, I am the voice of one calling in the wilderness. Make straight the way for the Lord. Now the Pharisees who had been sent question him, why then do you baptize if you are not the Messiah, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? And John's response was, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know. He is the one, look at those words, who comes. He is the one who comes after me, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie, This all happened at Bethany on the other side of the Jordan where John was baptizing. The next day, I love it, the next day John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, look at the word there, I mean he has been waiting for this moment. What would his first words be when he saw Jesus coming, I mean his debut? What would his word be? He reached all the way back into Isaiah and grabbed that word, behold. And he said, behold, the Lamb of God. Oh, I'm glad he didn't stop there. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Is that what he said? Is that in the Bible? He said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He wasn't drawing their attention to some sort of special event. He was drawing their attention to a special person. He said, behold, henna, henna, grace. Debts are forgiven. Grace. Let me ask you the question, why did Jesus come? He came to take away the sin of the world. Not cover it, take it away. Does that scripture say he covered it? No, friends, under the old covenant your sins were covered. Under the new covenant they are not covered, they are taken away. See, I've covered a lot of things in life and I've uncovered a lot of things in life. In fact, about everything I've ever covered up, I've uncovered at one time or another. I mean, we uncover things all the time! Jesus didn't come to cover or uncover something. He came to take away our sins. And I'll tell you what, you talk about liberty, you talk about freedom, when that reality becomes so true in your spirit, man, that he came to take away my sin. I have that revelation that he took away my sins, and I bear them no more. But that's John's first words. He said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, that truth would get echoed in other places in the Word of God. In fact, the Apostle John would echo that once again in 1 John chapter 3, in verse 5, when he said, "'And you know that Jesus came to take away our sins.'" I love this, "'And in Him there is no sin.'" Oh, isn't that wonderful? In him, there is no sin. Let me ask you the question, where are we? (laughs) We are in him. Is there any sin in him? No. And there's no sin in us. Why? Because we have been placed in a perfect garden where sin does not dwell. Now, don't misunderstand me. That does not mean we cannot sin. That doesn't mean we do not commit a sin in thought, word, or deed. But I'm telling you, in the deepest part of who he created you to be, that is the God-man. The Bible says in Genesis one that God made us in his likeness and his image so that we would look like him and smell like him and sound like him and see like him and hear like him and taste like him. See, we are a flavor. We dispense a flavor everywhere we go. The Bible calls it the fragrance of Christ and the sweet smelling savor of Christ. He came to take away our sin. If Jesus came just to solely forgive us of our sins, then more sinning would put us back into debt again. Does that make sense? It would. But Jesus came to take away our sins. That's what the Christmas message is about. He came for this reason. To take away our sins. He canceled all of our debt. And you know what he did after he canceled all of our debt? He sealed us with the sweet Holy Spirit. He sealed us with the Holy Spirit. We are citizens of the covenant of promise. What is the promise? I'll tell you what the promise is. God with us. Emmanuel grace debts are forgiven grace that's his promise to you that's his promise to me in colossians chapter 2 verses 11 through 14 we find these words in him you were also circumcised with a circumcision not performed by human hands your whole self ruled by the flesh was put off when you were circumcised by Christ having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through your faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us." Friends, please, let these words fall to the sticky side of your heart. Look at those words. He has taken it away. And what did he do with them? He nailed them to the cross. (laughs) He nailed you and he nailed your sins and he nailed the written code. It was all nailed to the cross with Christ. If I get out of the word, please let me know. I'm in the word right now, friends. I don't know. You can't make this any more plain. What does he say there? He has taken it away. Taken what away? Taken your sin. Taken that sinful nature away from you. And what did he do with it? He crucified it. He nailed it to the cross with Christ. Brings me great joy. The Bible speaks of many reasons Jesus came. And I'll tell you something, they're all precious. I wish I could stay here and preach them all, but there's so many of them, friends. Oh, let me just show you a couple more. First Timothy chapter one, verses 14 and 15. The grace of our Lord was poured out in me, the apostle Paul said, and he said he poured it out abundantly, along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. He said, here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Look at those words. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. Now. The Apostle Paul is not still calling himself a sinner, but the Apostle Paul says, I remember where I came from. He said, man, I was the worst. You thought you were the worst, huh? Oh, no. Apostle Paul said he was the chief of sinners. But Jesus came into the world to save me, he said. He said, listen, if he'll save me, and I held the title, I held the trophy, it was on my mantle at home. Worst sinner of all time. And he said, he came to save me. He said, that ought to bring you some hope, man. That ought to bring you some great hope. I've done some pretty ugly things, B.C., before Christ. Oh, man. But I'm telling you what, Apostle Paul said, hey, listen, don't try to take this away from me. I'm telling you, when I tell you I was the worst, I'm telling you, I've thought this thing through, I'm telling you, I was the worst. And he came to save me. I was a sinner, he said. He said. And then we see what Jesus said to Zacchaeus in Luke chapter 19 after Jesus comes to his home and Jesus has fellowship with him. Jesus has dinner with him. He doesn't even call him a dirty, rotten down tax collecting sinner. He doesn't go through any of that stuff. He's good to him. He's a stranger to him. They've not met, but he invited him to come to his home, and he went, Brother Gary. And then when he got there, he probably just started speaking grace over him, good things over him. And Zacchaeus got the revelation himself. Oh, man, I'm a dirty, rotten sinner. But you've come to my home. See, I'm right behind Paul. I've cheated and swindled. And he was so repentant. You know what Jesus said? He said, for the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. What a wonderful Christmas message to know that the Son of Man came with the purpose to seek and save the lost. In John 10, verse 10, the second part of that scripture, Jesus said, I have come, or I am come, that you might have life, and that you might have life more abundantly What did he say, brother? He said, I want to tell you. Let's make this plain. I'm going to tell you the reason I came. I have come that you might have life. What kind of life is he talking about? Conditional life, right? No, he's talking about eternal life. He said, I have come that you might have life, Zoe kind of life, and life more abundantly. Conditional life is not abundant life. Temporary life is not abundant life. Only eternal life is abundant life. And Jesus said, Let me tell you something. I'm gonna tell you, this is the reason I came. So that I could give you abundant life. Oh, and I love this one. First John chapter 3 and verse 8. The Son of God came to destroy the works of the devil. Now, if there were any left, he'd still be here. He said, I came to destroy the works of the devil. Let me ask you the question, what are the works of the devil? It's not a trick question, it's just sin, that's all. That's all he knows, lies, murders, that's all he knows, it's all sin. And Jesus said, I am come to destroy the works of the devil. How did Jesus destroy sin in our lives? Ask the question, ask the question, how did Jesus destroy sin in our lives? He took them away, all at once. Past, present, future. He took them all away at once. That's how he destroyed it. And what did he do? He gave us his innocence. He deposited inside of us his righteousness. He gave us his holiness. He gave us his daddy's love. He gave us his heart. He gave us himself. He gave us a covenant with a promise. This gift that God gave us was laid carefully in a cradle at birth, and then was hung carelessly on a tree at death. I want you, when you look at your Christmas tree this season, I want you to look at that and I want you to remember that, that Jesus hung on a tree. He was the first Christmas tree! And I looked at our tree before I left this morning with all its beautiful light, and my wife does such a great job, and I just looked at it and I marveled how beautiful that tree was. But that tree was nothing! When it was stood in the forest, it was everything. It was everything when it came to us. And we said, Yes, 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 Lord, I want eternal life. Yes, Lord. Amen. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 12 again. Remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. So, the question, what was God's response to a hopeless people? Come on, let's not lose that piece of the puzzle. There would be nothing worse than putting together a thousand-piece puzzle and all of a sudden find out in the end, man, there's one piece missing. And if you don't understand what God's response to a hopeless people are, you're missing a piece of the puzzle. That's a very valid piece too, isn't it? So what was God's response to hopeless people? Was it larger? Let me ask that question. Was it larger than just taking away our sins? Was it greater than making us covenants of the promise? Yes. You see, you and I are going to receive a number of gifts at Christmas this year. No doubt about it. I'm going to tell you something. Those gifts all have one thing in common. You know what they are? Given enough time, every single one of those gifts will perish, spoil, or fade. You don't believe me? Just go buy a new car one time. I guarantee it will perish, it will spoil, it will let you down, and it will fade. But the reason he came was to give us the gifts of sonship, the gift of inheritance, the gifts that can never perish, the gift that can never spoil, the gift that can never fade they are the gift that truly one size fits all there's no need to take it back it fits perfectly we see this truth in first peter chapter 1 verses 3 through 5 praise be to the god and father of our lord jesus christ in his great mercy he has given us new birth into a living hope friends the hope of christ is alive dale it's alive The hope of Christ is a living hope. He has given us a new birth and to live in hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Did you notice it didn't say it came through the birth? No. It came through the resurrection. I love what my wife always says. She says at Christmas you preach an Easter message and she said at Easter you preach a Christmas message. And there's some truth in that. Friends, it came through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead And into an inheritance, an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you. You know why it's kept there? So you can't lose it. So you can't misplace it. It's kept in heaven so you can't wreck it. Listen, man, I have wrecked so many things in life. I mean, you give any kid a toy long enough, I guarantee it to be wrecked. He said this gift of sonship, this gift of inheritance has been reserved in heaven for you. A place where rust and moth do not live, do not destroy that which God has created. And he says, who through faith, whose faith is he talking about? He's talking about the faith of Christ, that your faith. See, the Bible says we live by the faith of Christ. If you have shipwrecked faith apart from God, man, that's about it. Who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is already to be revealed in the last time. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 13 through 17. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself, look at those words, is our peace. The world is searching for peace. They long for peace, but they go searching for it in all the wrong places. The Bible says he alone is our peace. He himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one, and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law and its commandments and regulations. Now listen to those words right there. He said, listen, we're going to be hostile with one another as long as the law, the rules, the regulations, all that stuff's in place. He said, I'm going to destroy that barrier. He said, and then there'll be a cohesiveness, there'll be a unity between you and I. And the Bible says that he destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, not the cradle, but the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. Look at those words now. He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. I guess that just about covers everybody, doesn't it? You're either near or you're far away. I mean, one or the other. He said, I came to preach peace to those that are near and those that are far away. What was he saying? I came to preach peace to the Jew and the Gentile, to the sinner and the saint, to the new hire or the seasoned employee. His message is the same. Grace! Debts are forgiven. Grace! Jesus came to preach peace to all mankind, and that's because he is the Prince of peace. Isaiah called him that in Isaiah chapter 9 verses 6 and 7 when he said, for to us a child is born, that speaks of the cradle. To us a child is born, unto us a son is given, that speaks of the cross. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. A son is given. Given to what? Given to who? Given to us. We're the ones who needed the son. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, there's those words, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. There's been times where something has came in and just kind of seemed like it's just taken my peace away. You ever been there? Were you that way on the way to church this morning? (laughs) But God is prophesying through Isaiah. He's saying of this peace, there will be no end. There is no way for you to turn it off. There is no way for you to wreck this peace. Because peace is not something that comes in externally for the Lord. He doesn't go, oh, we're having a good day, so I'm having a peaceful day. No, he is the origin of peace. He is the prince of peace. It's where our peace comes from. He's the prince of peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there shall be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice, oh, I love it, and righteousness from that time on and forever. There are many more reasons that the Bible speak of regarding the reason Jesus came. But ultimately he came to reveal the love of the Father and the heart of the Father. I'm telling you that's what was on his mind. He came to reveal the heart the Father and he did that all throughout his ministry but then at the end of his life we see in John 17 this long prayer where Jesus prays to the Father he prays for his disciples he prays for all people he prays for himself the whole chapter John 17 is all Jesus praying it's all in red and it's there that he reveals the true nature of his daddy it's there that he reveals the heart and the love And the reason that his father sent him, we pick up on that in John chapter 17, verses 24 through 26. He said, Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory. The glory you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. I want you to know something, friends, today. God loved you before you did anything for him. He says, you loved me before the creation of the world. Righteous Father, though the world does not know you, he said, I know you. I don't have to peek inside the envelope, Daddy. I know you. I know how you are, Papa. You've revealed yourself in fullness to me, Daddy. He said, I know you and they know that you have sent me. He said, I have made you known to them, first from the cradle, and then from across. And I will continue to make you known in order that the love, there he goes, in order, this is why I've come. This is what I want them to see. In order that the love you have for me may be in them And that I myself may be in them. He was saving that crescendo to say, listen, my daddy wants to love you the same way he loves me before the creation of the world. This is how my father loves me. Intimately. Friends, That extravagant love that I'm talking about, that extravagant gift that daddy gave us came knocking on the first Christmas and then at the cross and then at our heart's door. You see, Jesus was the man who knocked on the man's door in that story in the beginning. The man just failed to let him in. Oh, he took his goodness, but said no to the stranger. Do you see that? He is the one with the kind eyes. He is the one with the kind heart. Several years ago, I led a man to Jesus. I had met with that man on several occasions. And I sat him down one day in a chair across from me and I began to share the love of Christ with him. And he looked at me and here's what he said. He said, you have the kindest eyes I've ever seen. Now friends, listen, I've looked at my eyes a million times in the mirror. I don't look at my eyes and go, wow, I've got kind eyes. I just don't do that. My eyes are just kind of funny, like little droopy little things. You can't hardly even see them, you know. But he saw the love of the Father is what he saw that day, working in me and through me. And when he said that, I heard the Holy Spirit say, now's the time. Now's the time for him. And he was so easy to bring to Christ because Jesus had manifested to him. He is the one that graciously gives without thought of return. Like the man in the beginning, a suitcase, but yet was still willing to walk away because he wasn't invited in. That's the heart of God, to graciously give whether you invite him in or not. But the truth of the matter is, we have invited him in. And he's graciously and abundantly pouring provision into our hearts. Revelation chapter 3, verse 20, my final scripture. Jesus said, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man will hear my voice and open the door, I will come in to him and sup with him and he with me. Do you hear the invitation? It's still knocking. And it's not just knocking on the doors of sinners. Jesus is saying, listen, let's have fun together. Let's do this together. Let me take you somewhere today. Let me show you the heart of my papa. Let me show you the heart of my daddy. Let me show you the extravagant love. Of the Father. Friends, the wonderful truths that reach out to us from the message today are these The insurmountable debt we call sin, the same sin that hissed at us with contempt, has been taken away and nailed to Christ's cross. We are in Christ and in Him. There is no sin. The works of the devil have been destroyed. We are as innocent and righteous as the newborn Christ. Our redemption began with the cry from the cradle and ended with the cry from the cross. What would that cross cry sound like? I'll tell you what it sound like. Father, Forgive them, for they know not what they do. That came from my Savior on a cross. What was Jesus saying from the cross? He was saying, Grace, debts forgiven, grace. What is our response? Behold the Lamb of God. Behold, Emmanuel, God with us to stay. So now the three questions one last time. Why did Jesus come? Why would the Father give such an extravagant gift? And why did he knock on my door? Well, friends, all three questions have the same answer. The reason he knocked The reason he gave such an extravagant gift and the reason he came to us was to make us his. Merry Christmas. Daddy, I want to thank you. I have just delighted in taking your heart and laying it out there for all of us to just see and to enjoy. I want to thank you, Father, that My performance is not counted into the equation. It's grace, debts forgiven, and grace. It begins and ends with Jesus. That's why he could stand and call himself the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. He was saying, listen, everything starts with me and ends with me. Daddy, I want to thank you for the revelation of the Christmas gift that came to us. First in a cradle and then a cross. You laid him in a manger and then in a mausoleum, but he rose from the dead so that we could celebrate. We could celebrate the life that you've given us, the life of Christ. That is the reason he came. In Jesus' name, amen.